Hello, welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host for today, Carla Nappi. I recently spoke with Graham Burnett about his book, The Sounding of the Whale, Science and Cetaceans in the 20th Century, and that came out just this year with the University of Chicago Press. This is a book that is really satisfying to a number of different kinds of readers on a number of different levels. Not only does Graham introduce us to some extraordinarily compelling characters, and so we meet whalers, we meet whaling scientists, um, we we meet people who had interesting luggage, people who were foundational in work with dolphins and whales in the 20th century, we meet musicians, we meet all kinds of really wonderfully um, evocatively written characters. But because this book is based in such exhaustive and detailed archival work, there's also a very satisfying account of the rich fabric of really, in some cases, day-to-day decisions that went into making what became the whale science, the science of actually dolphins and whales um, in the 20th century. Um, It's a, a beautifully organized, a beautifully written book, and we had a great time talking about it. And to get the full effect, listeners will note that at the beginning of the interview, um, I'm laughing quite a bit. And that's because prior to starting to record, Graham read to me um, a review that he'd recently found that he characterized as um, something like one of the best reviews of his work he'd ever read. So for the full effect, I recommend you um, reading that review, which I've linked um, on the page of this NBN broadcast. So you can click on it and read it. And then listen to the interview that's to follow. Have fun. Hi, Graham. Hey, Carla. We're here today at New Books in Science, Technology, and Society to talk with Graham Burnett about his recent book, The Sounding of the Whale, Science and Cetaceans in the 20th Century. And that came out with the University of Chicago Press in 2012. Now, this is a really amazing book on many levels. I mean, it's an enormously exhaustive account um, that's based, that's clearly based on an almost inhuman range of archival sources and documents and films and music. Um, But it's also very much the kind of study through which some very coherent and really fascinating narrative themes thread from beginning to end, even in the context of some very, very different um, local case studies about um, cetaceans and the whale and porpoises. Um, I really, really loved uh, reading through it. And thanks so much, Graham, for making the time to talk with us about it today. Oh, it's a pleasure. I'm so looking forward to it. So, Graham, could you start us off a little bit by um, just saying a little bit about how you got into this project in the first place? Sure. So, um, let's see. I mean, the embarrassing truth is, I think the seed origin of the book lies in an immoderate enthusiasm for Melville's Moby Dick. So, this is now going back some time, but um, it was on... A reading of that book maybe now 12 years ago, 10, 12 years ago, that I was brought up short by the enormous amount of sort of technical, what we would now think of as biological information about cetaceans that sort of lards the whole middle two-thirds of that, uh, of that masterwork. Mm-hmm. And as somebody with an interest in um, the history of natural history, the history of rationality at its limits, um, I found myself wondering whether it would be possible to roll up my sleeves and try to make sense of how whales had been both represented culturally and understood scientifically. Mm-hmm. Over the last, well, and then that was the question, uh, set your set your date range. I'd originally imagined writing a book, say, that would reach from the early modern period across to the Save the Whales movement um, in the late 20th century. And it was really then, as the research got going, that I began to see ways to carve up that larger story. And the result is... Mm-hmm. two books, the result has been, is now two books, a book published in 2007 called Trying Leviathan, which mm-hmm. uses the whale as a problem of knowledge 
to anchor a, a study of changing ideas of natural order, systematics, taxonomy, between Linnaeus and Darwin, so from the mid-18th, say, to the sort of later 19th century. And uh, and there's more to say about that book, but but maybe we'll have to find ourselves another occasion to, to chat that one up. And then the book book, the big book, which once I'd finished trying Leviathan, I saw was going to have to be a 20th century book. And that's the book that was um, uh, published about a month and a half ago. The Sounding of the Whale, which really zeroes in on changing ideas about an understanding of this taxon from the beginning of the 20th century across more or less to now to the to the end of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And it's it's interesting that you said you uh, started off by talking about an interest in the history of rationality as a, at its limits because I think that's one of the really interesting things that threads through the whole book, right? This is in some ways a history of whales, but in many ways it's also among many other kinds of work that it does a history of different ways of constructing what it could look like to be rational. Um and among different communities of people and also by the end of it the possibility of um being rational as an animal. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's one of I think a lot of different kinds of um, work that's um, that that's done in this book, and so it's it's one of the I think more fascinating aspects for anyone interested in the construction of knowledge who may not imagine themselves initially interested in whales. Well, whales have a funny uh, history as mm, placeholders, if you like, in a certain kind of perennial argument about the limits of knowledge. It's you know not for nothing that Leviathan is Yahweh's answer to Job out of the whirlwind when Job poses no no smaller question than the theodicy, the, you know, the problem of evil. Um, explain to me, God, why there's evil, and and you'll remember that that God's answer includes a kind of withering. Can you draw out Leviathan with a hook? What do you know about this beast monster that I've made? If you can't, uh, if you can't number, weigh, count, measure, dominate that thing, then you have no business posing the kinds of questions to me you're asking. And so, um, if that lies at the origin of a certain conflation of cetaceans and irreducible mystery kind of the of absolute alterity that's a story that can be spun out at great length across you know uh 2000 years now that very very high level mythopoetic story is as you know from having hacked your way through a very fat book not really the thing that the sounding of the whale is about the sounding of the whale is a discrete and kind of borderline exhaustive treatment of how scientists in the 20th century have tried to make sense of a fugitive and peculiar taxon. But always in the wings, and I think you've pointed to that, to this fact, always in the wings in the book is a sort of, at least I hope, is always a slight kind of shivery awareness that we're on turf that is um, we're on turf where the limits of knowledge are concerned and by the end of the book some of the genuine weirdness of that fact I think is is on my sleeve as an author and some reviewers have noticed that right so this is <laughs> you're, you're, you're I'm, chuckling. Right, I'm uh, laughing. What listeners don't know, and you may or may not get a sense of this <laughs> over the course of the conversation, is that before we recorded, um, Graham read to me what has got to be the best review of a book that I have ever heard in my life. Um, and I've read a lot of book reviews <laughs> in my life. So, um, so Graham, I'll leave it to you to decide um, at what point or <laughs> whether you want to share that. Um, but yes, yeah, so you'll hear me uh, chuckling over the course of this interview as those images um, recur and sort of come to the surface. 
I propose we use it as a hook to keep people with us for uh, for the next 40, 45 minutes, eh? and we'll see if we reward them at the end for their patience <laughs> with a few apt quotes uh, from 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 this lay reader who found his way to the heart of this peculiar project. Perfect. So listeners, stay tuned because um, we will get there. Okay, so Graham, you start off the book after a preface where you um, describe eating whale um, and you describe the making of the book as a kind of extended spiritual exercise. Um, You start the book off in the introduction by telling us or reminding us that there actually aren't any whales in the book. Um, And to to sort of get to whales, you have to go out to the sea and go find some, but there aren't going to be any whales in the book. Um, Can you talk about that a little bit as a way to get us started? Yes, and I probably now owe our listeners at least uh, some unpacking of of the quote you you referenced, namely the idea that the writing of the book could amount to a spiritual exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, the the opening of the book um, frets maybe in a manner that could be described as. Uh, embarrassingly self-dramatizing. I don't know if that's a stylistic question. It frets the the kind of classic problem of knowledge, which is that knowledge takes forms different from the thing known. And as a result, implicit in knowledge is always some sense of alienation. And um, I, I, tr- I trouble us, you know, myself and the reader, with that because it feels necessary to remind us, that is me and the reader, that scientists who've chased whales and historians who chase whale scientists are placed to a non-trivial degree in homologous positions. The, the scientists uh, can, can never get their whales. And similarly, um, the, the historian of whale science uh, is, is never able fully to hold, embrace, inhabit, um, be in and with his subject matter. So it's, it's an effort to symmetricalize, if you like, um, my position with respect to my subject and my subject's position with respect to their subject. Now, the business about you know the book not having any whales in it may be a little too puckish again, um, but there is such an such an important trend, I would argue in a certain version of the you know new criticism the kind of animal studies literature there's that that body of work which sits between environmental history and the history of science and for which there's much to be said and from which i've learned a lot and to which i hope in certain ways this book contributes nevertheless there's a way in which that work um can drift in the direction of a romanticizing and even um, sometimes sanctimonious projection of intimacy with its subject organisms. And because this book um, is a history of science, really, first and foremost, it adopts something of a Eustace Tilly posture from the outset, monocled and standing back and refusing to sort of um, use those rhetorical games that project that intimacy with the subject organisms. So while you're right that the preface talks a little bit about, you know, how I've cried being near whales and have eaten whales and, you know, find whales very moving, the, the book then very quickly wants to indicate that all of that stands um, at some distance from the project of writing a book like this, which is a massively archival undertaking. And as I say, you know, involves mostly sitting still and reading books and periodically typing. 
and that the book itself doesn't have much truck with some of the things that environmental historians and animal studies historians have gotten quite interested in in the last, say, 10 or 15 years, namely giving the animals agency, making the animals kind of uh, present as um, as actors uh, in their own right, this sort of thing. The book is in that regard kind of resolutely old school but it's in in the way that's actually become really interestingly apparent the more interviews that i do um for nbsts and nbeas you know we tend to kind of resemble the material that we work on right or we tend to choose the kinds of people and and projects to work on that most speak to our own um predilections that's of course not universally true but it's a tendency i think for all of us myself included and what you just described um in, in terms of this sort of tension between, um, on the one hand, uh, an experience with the actual things themselves, and on the other hand, the ability to create a story about these things and perhaps an image of these things sounds a lot like the the account that you give us of um, one of the characters that will come into the story later on in the book, Arthur Remington Kellogg, right? And you describe him as on the same, um, in the same way, both um, working primarily from archival documents and sort of writings about and images of whales instead of whales themselves, but using this um, in a way to create um, a picture of whales that really shaped the way Americans saw literally whales um, in the mid-century. And, and in some ways, that's also perhaps kind of a, a work that your book does as well. Yeah, so I mean, maybe what I should do for listeners who haven't been down in the book like you've been is kind of give them a very quick high-level overview of the of the arc of the book. Then we great. can come, come back to Kellogg, who is such an interesting and important character in sort of the first part of the book. I mean, grossly speaking, the book um, is divided into three parts. The first third deals with the opening of the modern whaling industry, which is to say the opening of the Antarctic whaling industry, which is so different from 19th century open boat, cold seal, kind of Moby Dick style whaling that it requires a non-specialist needs to take a minute to sort of uh, wrap his or her head around just how different what we're talking about is. This is um, explosive ordnance, power-driven catcher vessels, big stern slipway factory vessels for processing the animals, a pelagic industry that at its peak was taking in, you know, upwards of 30,000 animals a season, almost exclusively around the Antarctic convergence, <clears throat> namely a kind of ring of considerable upwelling around the South Pole and the Antarctic uh, landmass. This industry begins at the beginning of the 20th century. It <clears throat> Uh, for most of the 20th century, more whales are taken around this uh, this very kind of discrete region than every place else in the world. And fin whales. Okay. Graham, and I'm, so, I'm gonna. I'm Go sorry. You just, I think, had inadvertently put the um, put your iPhone on hold, so we missed part of the previous description. <laughs> Okay, um, it's possible, although you can look up for me one second, too, so it may just be the quality of our connection. Sure. So tell me where you last heard me, and I'll pick right so back up. So you um, were telling us about the beginning of this story um, in which um, you tell the story of the origin of modern whaling, right, and sort of talk about the Antarctic as an area that starts being opened up to um, the story of whales and whaling, um, and then we kind of lost you after that. Okay, okay. so the upshot is simply to say, this is an industry very different from the 19th century industry. It is uh, explosive ordnance, powered vessels, steam or diesel uh, powered vessels, mm -hmm. stern slipway, factory vessels, processing the animals. And an industrial undertaking. We're not talking about lamp oil or corsets days. We are talking about... Um, majority of the fat removed from the large blue and fin whales going into margarine, 
Mm-hmm. So, so something like 60% of the margarine being consumed in Europe between, say, 1920 and 1960 contains considerable amounts of uh, hydrogenated whale oil. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the oil is saponified and turned into soap. For a period of time around World War One, saponification, in fact, soap is kind of... Um, the byproduct of the pursuit of glycerin, which is used in explosives. And by the 30s, um, drying devices have been introduced to the industry such that meat and bones can be granulated and desiccated to produce fertilizer additives and um, protein supplements for um, industrial agriculture, livestock rearing and so forth. So this is uh, this is not anything like, you know, Nantucket, New Bedford style whaling. This is a very different thing. The first third of the book looks at the first set of biologists to try to study the animals under the conditions of this new, very intensive industrial exploitation. So these biologists, I call them hip boot whale biologists. Because they literally spend their lives on the cutting platforms where the animals are being chopped up, dismembered, and then their bits dropped into these huge industrial boilers and, and desiccators. These guys um, were trying to figure out basic reproductive physiology, mm-hmm. life history, migration patterns to some extent, and they were doing so in part because it was hoped that enough basic biological information on exploited species could be um, gathered before they were entirely wiped out to help regulate the industry. So, Graham, if you, um, rather than going through the whole book, if you don't mind, let's actually stay with this section uh, as as long as you brought it up for a little bit, because this is a really fascinating uh, chapter of the beginning of the story that I think, you know, sets the stage for what we'll talk about later. So we might as well kind of jump right in here. Okay. Well, you've already raised Kellogg, and Kellogg is relevant in that section of the book, so I can say a word about him. He starts out uh, in the United States as a naturalist, works for the Bureau of Biological Survey, and gets interested in whaling problem largely out of a kind of an American progressive era concern about conservation issues. And positions himself over his career as the U.S. expert on the industry and on the animals, eventually becoming a very significant figure in the rise of the International Whaling Commission, the first regulatory body to try and get a handle on um, truly international control of exploitation. But what you had alluded to was the interesting way in which Kellogg himself, despite his unquestioned status as an expert, had a peculiar kind of distance from subject animals. And maybe the choicest anecdotal evidence of that is this little archival tidbit. By the 1940s, when he's working very closely with the illustrator Elsie Musselman on a special issue of National Geographic that will depict um, not all, but nearly all of the major cetacean species in wonderful color and with little descriptions and become a real significant bit of Americana where whales are concerned. Kellogg's the expert. He's working with the illustrator. And in their correspondence about how the whales are going to be painted in the issue, there's this choice moment where she writes him, you know, are you sure about the skin color of those animals as it would be seen underwater. And Kellogg writes back and he says, well, you know, I've seen uh, that particular species from uh, the bow of a Cunard liner, uh, the Lusitania. Um, And when I saw them from there, they looked discolored to me. And as I was reading this in the archive, I thought, what an extraordinary thing. I mean, here's a guy who is the, uh, the American reigning expert on these animals without question. And as I thought back through reading his correspondence, I realized 
that that was just about as close as he'd gotten in most of his life to actual intimacy with the living animals, namely six or seven stories up on the bow of um, of an ocean liner. And it was an ocean liner he was on to go from the United States to Europe to participate in an international congress on the regulation of the industry. So you get some feel for the kind of peculiar distance of a zoological expert accustomed to working with specimens, specimens that were themselves sourced at whaling stations. But this guy, Kellogg, was not a hip boot guy. He never really spent any sustained period of time on uh, a whaling vessel. And indeed, you know, what he saw of the animals was basically um, not even as dramatic as what anybody who goes on a kind of a whale watching tour now would would have a striking fact. Right. And and he actually starts out as a paleontologist, right? And he gets interested in the ear bones of the whale, um, which sort of brings him into a more um, du- sort of direct contact with the study of the living specimens, um, which is really, I think, interesting as we move through the rest of the book, this importance of um, whale hearing and the ear bones and the sort of the importance of sound um, to the history of how whales become a kind of scientific object is actually really, really important and, um, you know, is reflected in the title of the book itself. But so so you mentioned um, this actually really important part of this story, and we're talking for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the book about chapter three. Um, and this is Kellogg's role in uh, this the formation of this um, International Whaling Commission. And this is the first formal international body devoted to the management of a biological resource. And so this is actually a really pivotal point in the history of not just whaling, but also um, the sort of collaboration or the communication between science and policy and the sort of ways that these realms um, were kind of massaged and navigated in order to develop, um, you know, sort of kinds of policies that we're familiar with now that we sort of take for granted, which is sort of management of resources. Can you say a little bit about um, this International Whaling Commission and sort of what's, what's the big deal? Why is it so important for this history? Sure. So uh, just as I said, the kind of first third of the book deals with this um, basic biological investigation into these animals under the conditions of the new modern industrial hunt. Really, the middle third of the book deals with the rise to prominence of the International Whaling Commission and with the central problem it faces from its founding in the immediate post-war period across to its kind of crisis years in the 1960s and 70s, namely how to integrate scientific findings into the regulatory process. Mm -hmm. So what interests me about the IWC is to use it as a kind of case study for the place of, um, of scientific expertise in a diplomatically intensive international regulatory arena. And there was in 1946, at the same moment that the UN was being created and the FAO and UNESCO, there was great enthusiasm, particularly among the Americans who spearheaded the formation of these international bodies. It was great enthusiasm for a kind of technocratic utopianism, the idea being that many of the world's problems could be solved if scientists were placed in a sufficiently pivotal position in the traditionally politically driven decision-making processes um, in in the international realm. And the IWC was born of that moment and its foundational documents stipulate that the body will be driven by the best available scientific findings and it will make uh, rulings, specifically limits on the catch, based on scientific advice. So what I do in the kind of chapters four and five is unpack what happened 
when it was time to go looking for some some scientists to give that expert advice. What did you need to know to regulate an industry in a sustainable so hi, we just got cut off. So um, at this point, we are kind of picking back up where we left off. So Graham, you were talking about um, the IWC and the context of um, sort of scientists and a kind of utopian um, urge to be involved in the diplomatic processes in American politics. Yeah. So the Americans who who led in the formation of a number of those post-war international organizations had grand visions for the role that science could play in um, improving natural resource use and uh, more generally in sort of streamlining the messy world of uh, geopolitics. And so the IWC was part of that. The International Whaling Commission's foundational documents specified that the organization would be led by um, scientific advice and what I tried to do in chapters four and five is unpack what happened when you went looking for a set of scientists to help you um, make decisions about the regulation of the whaling industry. Now, uh, Carla, you'll let me know if you got on tape mm-hmm. the point I made about the sort of strange thing that occurred when these diplomats went looking for scientists to help them do this regulatory work. No, I don't think we got there. So why don't you um, go for it? So what happened basically was that they went and found the very scientists uh, on whom I've spent a good chunk of the first third of the book, those hip-booted whale biologists of whom we've been speaking. And well, part of what's funny about what those guys had spent those 25, 30 years doing, uh, they really had done two things. They'd spent their time standing on the flensing platforms, the areas where whales are cut up with a huge blade in their hand, cutting up whales to collect their ovaries, their testes, to take stomach samples. Or they'd spent their time in the bow of catcher vessels, shooting whales with marker darts which were then recovered when the animals were killed, affording evidence on the animals' migrations. Well, if you stop and think about it, those two activities, cutting up whales on the flensing platform and shooting whales from the bows of catcher vessels, look more than a little like the two activities central to the whaling industry itself, which is to say that the field practices of whale biology across the first 35 or 40 years of the 20th century uh, paralleled almost exactly the basic practices of whalemen. And it's my argument that that sort of assimilation of the scientific study of whales to the practices of the industry across the first 40 years of the 20th century really made those whale biologists close to useless when it came time to draft them draft them into regulatory proceedings simply because they were too intimate with the industry, too steeped in its ways, too formed by its habitus. Uh, and part of the story I tell in chapters four and five is about the difficulties that those um, those scientists faced as they tried to transition into working in a regulatory environment. There's some, there's some other things to say about part of what you know interests me, and this is this is slightly inside baseball for STS type people and history of science type people, but I'm very interested in chapters four and five in understanding the kind of environment for science that was presented by this new space of the international regulatory body. It's a, it's a distinctively kind of mid 20th century environment, um, those conference rooms where uh, representatives of multiple nations hash out treaties and so forth. And I'm interested in understanding how science worked in those spaces in a general way. And I'm interested in examining the sort of social come epistemic dynamics of those environments. Part of what I argue is that committee architecture 
amounts to a kind of reification of the social dynamics of science in those spaces, which is to say, I think you can learn a great deal about the way science works in, um, in these sorts of environments by studying, you know, Robert's rules of order and <laughs> understanding that, that, that in the end committee architecture is a sort of literalization of the social dynamics of science that have so interested the kind of SSK types for, for some time. So that's kind of part of the methodological argument that I, that I present in, in the middle third of the book. Right. And I think you make a, a very compelling case in this, um, in this set of chapters. And we're talking about four and five here that I think, at least as I read this, um, so much of the literature on the history of whaling has been about, um, kind of character, uh, making a, a kind of caricature almost of what science looks like, um, in these very general terms that it's only by really getting into the nitty gritty of how the committees worked, what the memos were like, what's actually happening on a day to day level almost. Um, you know, in, in some as, in uh, some parts of these chapters, it's only by really understanding that you, that you understand how the science was done, rather than sort of coming at this set of issues with these large categories that are kind of um, interpreted onto. Um, the material, and I think that that aspect of these um, chapters, especially chapter five, um, works really well. Well, you the the kind of standard line through a lot of the political science literature that has dealt with the failure of the IWC in the post-war period, the standard line there has been, what a pity it was that there wasn't more science. Mm-hmm. Or what a pity it was that the science there was got politicized once it moved into the regulatory arena. And, uh, you know, without being excessively polemical, I really go after both of those truisms and show that in many ways, the problem wasn't that there wasn't enough science. It was that there was too much science, but of what I kind of argue is the wrong kind, a kind of science that was so deeply embedded in the industry as um, as continuously to reinforce its basic practices. And that it wasn't that the science sort of, that some sort of pristine, pre-politicized science got politicized as it got dragged into the regulatory arena, but that a number of the scientists in question were pretty savvy about the political forum in which they were being forced to work and made strategic decisions about how to present their um, findings and their claims in a way that was politically advantageous. So they were trying to um, build relationships set precedent for getting heard. Um, and to some extent they got wrong footed in the politics more than the, uh, than some, uh, general politicization of, uh, scientific findings story, which is the story that has been traditionally told about these kinds of situations. Right. And I think you, you make a really good point here that sort of one of the things that's happening, if you look, um, which which not many of us, frankly, do, and this was sort of revelatory for me as someone who works on you know early modern um, natural history texts. If you look at the actual nitty gritty of how these committees are structured and how the information flow in these committees and subcommittees and subcommittees of subcommittees actually works, um, you can see this story of the kind of the efforts, as you say, to define the sort of scientific subcommittees of this larger commission as a politics-free zone was on the one hand really successful, but also very successful in marginalizing um, this, uh, the science that was, these, these people were trying to make such an effort to incorporate into the policymaking decisions. So it was actually kind of, uh, you know, Janice faced sort of success there, if you can call it something like that. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, the scientists themselves had a strong interest in, uh, finding spaces within this complicated and highly politicized organization where they could operate, quote unquote, as scientists. Uh, and in that sense, they, it can be argued, colluded in their own marginalization because subcommittees were continuously formed where it was hoped that a kind of uh, pure rational investigation of the problems could be pursued, but those were consistently made subsidiary to to the kind of main decision-making bodies. And in that kind of uh, continual splitting, there was a kind of pressing out to the margins the space of sort of a pure investigation of nature. And it was as those findings made their way back 
to the Committee of the Whole that the scientists found themselves on multiple occasions wrong-footed. There were other dynamics too, though. I mean, it, it, it could not infrequently happen that the very hardest problems in the Committee of the Whole, problems that, that ran the risk of shattering the fragile consensus that operated in the Committee of the Whole. There was often a temptation to define those kinds of questions as scientific questions and push them out to scientific committees and subcommittees. So in this situation, you see it's the, it's the obverse of the traditional story that gets told where you know, the science gets politicized. Here you have a situation where questions are defined as scientific precisely to protect the sphere of politics from itself uh, or from the vociferous features of any kind of political uh, disputation. So um, I won't deny that it's a kind of painstaking work that happens in chapters four and five, and you have to have an appetite for going down deep in um, committee reports and, and their ancillary uh, documentation, but I do think I do think that it yields. I mean, I think there are some there are some um, rewards for those who are willing to persevere through the through the belly of uh, of the middle third of this book. Absolutely. <laughs> And but lest listeners um, think that this book is all about the sort of the committee work and the um, the these sort of larger issues of science and politics and the navigation among the two and the sort of marriage of the two, there are also some fascinating characters um, that recur throughout this book. We have, I mean, in the second chapter, we have Major Barrett Hamilton who um, makes it back from makes it I think two months on um, the whaling voyage before being sent back in a steel tub full of formaldehyde. Um, and is he the guy? And this is a guy who brings two combs, a nail buffer, a clothes brush, and a pair of gauntlet gloves on this trip, in which he's sort of slogging through whale guts. Um, we have we've already talked not about to mention, some, not to mention Oscar Wilde's De Profundis, if I'm not mistaken. Aha, uh-huh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and there's and for listeners uh, again who haven't had a chance to read it, there's just some wonderfully evocative and just fascinating accounts um, of the kind of the work and the um, the real sort of emotional and physical trauma or sort of challenges of this work, both by um, people on this um, British discovery vessel, um, which we have the discovery investigation vessel, which is the second chapter. Um, and also Kellogg who works with ear bones and you give a wonderful account of him. Um, but what I'm of course working my way to, because this, um, this would not be complete if we didn't get to, um, what's, um, in many ways, um, perhaps, uh, for, for some readers going to be the most, um, exciting of the chapters. And this is chapter six and the, the ultimate character of characters here, which is, uh, John C. Lily. Yeah. You take us by the end of this story um, to um, the context in which um, this sort of um, the story of the IWC and the story of um, the sort of the mobilization of mathematical models of population um, dynamics and regulation and these arguments over the territoriality of the ocean kind of resolve into this context um, in the 1960s and 1970s where there are really extraordinary shifts in attitudes towards whales and dolphins um, and sort of what becomes of them in, in this larger context. So the, the person who's really at the center of this chapter and at the center of this story um, is John Lilly. Um, and for listeners, uh, this becomes a story about many things, including mind control and military bioscience and LSD and dolphin sex and all kinds of things. Um, so Graham, can you talk a little bit about this um, John uh, C. Lilly character for us and sort of maybe introduce him for readers who haven't or for listeners who haven't yet read the book? Sure. So again, you know, if you divide the book into thirds, I would say the material you're now talking about is really the last third of the book. Um, first third on pre-World War II biological investigations of the animal, middle third on the regulatory policies in the IWC. And we haven't discussed it just quickly. There's a lot of stuff on the mathematical modeling borrowed from fisheries biology that proved very important in establishing catch quotas for sustainable yields. That's the middle third of the book. And then the gloves come off and the real weirdness begins as we turn to the late 1950s and early 1960s and try to make sense of the dramatic transformations in public perceptions of whales and dolphins and in scientific understanding of those animals um, 
say after 1960, between 1960 and the moratorium on commercial whaling in the mid 1980s. So uh, I argue that the key figure here is uh, this pioneering neurophysiologist named uh, John C. Lilly, who begins as an NSF career grant winner, um, scientist at the National Institutes of Mental Health outside of Washington, D.C., whose early work is on cortical mapping in macaques and who operates in the kind of penumbra of the, the, you know, the Cold War Manchurian candidate era sciences of mind and behavior. So there are a certain number of spooks hanging around the edges of um, the National Institutes of Mental Health who are interested in mind control, interested in reprogramming. Lily, you know, has relatively serious security clearance is an, a known quantity to a number of characters in the security establishment and they have an interest in the kind of work he does because it's work about that that pertains directly to access of other minds access to other minds um, for various reasons Lily gets interested in Terciops truncatus, the bottlenose dolphin, in the late 1950s, and in part through links with some of the ocean parks that are just springing up in this period that are keeping bottlenose dolphins in captivity, he begins to get to work uh, doing live vivisection on um, on some bottlenose whales. He's very impressed by their brains. He's impressed by their, the size of their brains. And he uh, comes to believe, how he comes to believe this is part of the story I try to tell, that these are extremely intelligent animals, almost certainly possessed of something like language, capable of communication, not only among themselves, but probably with us. And he comes to believe they are, in fact, trying to communicate with him. And while some of this may seem a little far-fetched, he's ultimately successful in raising a very considerable amount of grant money from, among others, NASA, by promoting small odontocetes, dolphins and porpoises, as model organisms for studying interspecies communication. So really what he, he says is, if, if the SETI program and so forth is successful, we're going to break through to non-human intelligent life, we should have a model system in place for how to cross the communicative barriers that will inevitably present themselves once we meet non-human intelligences. <clears throat> so Carl Sagan hangs around the dedicated laboratory that Lily builds in the Virgin Islands, where he works with uh, a set of Terciops for several years in the early 1960s. He sets up a second laboratory in southern Florida for a period of time. And for a few years in there, he is the cat's meow um, where the study of cetacean intelligence and communication is concerned. Um, Navy very interested in the animals because they have extraordinary echolocatory capabilities. And there is a broader sort of Cold War marine biosciences context for Lily's work um, because, of course, the the Navy has underwater listening stations set up for submarine detection that have been picking up submarine phonation from various animals for quite a while. And the Navy has some people who are studying those sounds and trying to um, collate them with the organisms that produce them in order to be able to filter them out and potentially be able to use them for signal jamming and this kind of thing. So Lily hangs with some of these guys. Um, and as, as you'll know, Carla, and as some people will know, cause I've written a little bit about this kind of stuff outside the context of the book. I did a piece for Orion, uh, which is an environmental magazine a few years ago on some of this. And I published a piece recently in a Japanese magazine in Japanese Kagaku, on some of the same material, because of course Japanese have a strong interest in these sorts of questions. What happens? Well, Lily tunes in, turns on, and drops out. Across this period, he begins experimenting using a number of the techniques that he'd toyed with in at NIMH, including LSD, which is of course used as a uh, kind of uh, supplement to psychotherapy used 
to reduce inhibitions in talk therapy. Lily comes to believe that it's possible that some of the inhibitions that are blocking his communicative efforts with the dolphins need to be addressed, and LSD presents itself as a way to do that. He also uses um, some of the techniques of sensory deprivation and um, isolation that are also characteristic of the work he was doing at NIMH. He develops the flotation tank as a sensory deprivation environment, comes to think of it as a way to kind of commensurate his body with the body of, of, the, of the dolphin. And so by 1964-65, what's going on in his labs at the, in the U.S. Virgin Islands is starting to look a lot like a very trippy kind of um, transit across the watershed separating uh, the era of you know, mad men from, uh, from the era of Woodstock. And when the peer review folks who are evaluating his grants begin to get wind of what he's up to, especially after the wake of, of Leary and uh, shifting perception of LSD, um, Lily is sort of sent to some extent on a, on a trajectory that will take him out of the orbit of ordinary science and uh, put him in a jumpsuit and send him out to the Esalen Institute before it's all over. So he becomes persona non grata in the emerging community of marine mammal biologists, and he certainly becomes persona non grata in the soon to be um, in the in the soon to be made secret Navy marine mammal program, which is working to train these animals to support frogmen. Uh, and to support Sea Lab, and potentially to be operationalized in um, in weapons systems. There are a set of dolphins, as you probably know, who end up um, in Vietnam in the early 1970s. Part of what I try to show in Chapter Six is this kind of crazy context that puts dolphins and ultimately whales on the hook as these charged organisms in a period that sees the showdown between the hawks and the doves um, in, the, in the late 60s and early 1970s. And Lily is, is crucial to that. And there's dolphin sex with lipstick. <laughs> it is also true that, that Lily um, mobilizes yet another of the sort of tools in the armamentum of those Cold War sciences of mind and behavior, those spooks interested in breaking enemy agents, namely chronic contact or sustained cohabitation, often with a member of the opposite sex, which is supposed to develop a dependency relationship and, and facilitate a willingness to enter into a more intimate communication. So, yeah, in the incandescent endgame of the whole thing, Lily makes uh, the lab in the Virgin Islands floodable and there's an elevator that lifts the dolphins out of the tidal pool where they're normally kept and they can be brought into the laboratory and swim around in sort of uh, water deep enough for them to slosh in and they are um, set to cohabit with uh, a young female researcher who is indeed in a kind of a leotard for much of this and yes uh, Lily instructs her to use lipstick to help the dolphins read her lips when she talks with them and these chronic contact um, experiments uh, do culminate in a version of what you might call the oldest form of human animal communication namely a kind of um, sexual contact um, that uh, well, it, uh, it, you know, by this point, um, you're starting to see the emergence of the idea that these animals, specifically dolphins, but by extension, the large whales, are kind of instantiations of a kind of pure being, non-manipulative because they don't have hands, sort of erotic, um, deeply kind of uh, transparent to each other, capable of sustained communication. And uh, you have some of the kind of backdrop for um, for what becomes the countercultural age of Aquarius obsession with these organisms, which is not disconnected from, from Eros for sure, but is equally 
uh, connected to their kind of ostensible pacifism and so forth. So it's it gets it is a it is a weird hot tub before uh, the whole thing is is over, and you know to bring it back to the kinds of historical genealogies that satisfy um, proper historians. Lily's legacy lives in very concrete ways. One of the kind of payout arguments at the end of the book is that um, without Lily's work, which involved using sound spectrographs on dolphin phonation and then the kind of analysis of those spectrographic outputs for phonemic elements, because he was looking for sort of language units, without all that research, you would never have gotten, I argue, the watershed paper in science by Payne and McVeigh in the early 70s, uh, Songs of the Humpback Whale. It was, in fact, an assistant in Lily's laboratories, Scott McVeigh, who did that work with the sound spectrographs and who, with Lily, and who brought those same techniques across to working with humpback phonation provided uh, by a Navy listening station in the Caribbean. And in using those Lily-derived techniques of phonemic analysis, what McVeigh ultimately believes he finds is not language exactly, but the kind of repeating structures that can defensively be called song. And songs of the humpback whale become the soundtrack not only of an emerging global youth-driven countercultural conservation movement, think Stockholm, UN Conference on uh, the Environment, but but also more broadly kind of integrated into folk music and uh, a kind of soundtrack for, for, for the 1970s more generally. So if that's one kind of concrete filiation of Lily's work that has real implications for rethinking of of whales as intelligent and musical and needing to be defended. Another important uh, filiation of his work bears directly on on your native habitat out there in Vancouver. It was a kind of a lily clone, uh, a a young man named Paul Spong, who um, took a degree in um, psychology, experimental psychology, and did work on marine mammals, and who, pursuing a kind of lily vision of himself, uh, ended up at the Vancouver Aquarium, who not only has a kind of lily-esque moment with Skana, a captive killer whale in that collection, um, an animal he comes to believe is experimenting on him in much the same way that Lily had come to believe that his dolphins were so smart they were experimenting on, on him in the Virgin Islands. But Paul Spong then leaves the Vancouver Aquarium declaring that Skana needs to be freed and joins forces with a, a quirky group of Buddhists and freaks and Quakers uh, hanging around Vancouver protesting French nuclear weapons testing in the in Polynesia. And he, Paul Spong, is the guy who turns them to Soviet whaling as a kind of crucial social issue and conservation issue of the time. And it's Paul Spong who ultimately um, brings Greenpeace to bear on the whaling problem, ultimately producing um, some extraordinary moments of direct confrontation between these long-haired guys in Zodiacs and Soviet whaling vessels over the Mendocino Ridge in 74 and 75. So um, so that's part of how I make this argument in Chapter 6, that, that Lily's scientific work ultimately reverberates broadly culturally and then also kind of affiliates quite directly towards some of the most important moments in the, in the 1960s and 1970s that lead to the moratorium on commercial whaling by, uh, by the 1980s. Great. Thank you so much, Graham. Well, there are roughly probably two million or more things in this book that are fascinating. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinarily rich book um, that we didn't actually get a chance to talk about. Um, but I don't. But before we get to the review, if you still want to read it, um, the one thing that's um, that we didn't talk about much, but that you mentioned sort of briefly, um, that seems like this would be an issue of, of real contemporary importance for people who read the book is the issue of Japan. Um, you mentioned it a few points in this book. Um, and this will be the last thing that I ask you about. 
um, that this history that you tell us very um, richly and in lots of wonderful detail um, forms a basis for understanding what um, Japan and sort of Japanese whalers are doing right now to justify their claims on um, sort of, uh, you know, k- killing whales basically um, as, as a direct link to the story that you're telling. And so can you, um, it, that was a very inarticulate way of putting the basic question. Can you talk about the role of Japan here and sort of how this integrates with, um, briefly with um, the story that you tell, especially in the early part of the book? Sure. So um, it is true that Japan currently whales under the scientific whaling uh, provision of the IWC's charter. There's a little section in that charter document that says that if you're studying whales, you can kill any whale, any place, any time. And um, Japan has used that provision as a kind of a loophole in order to continue to pursue uh, whales in a pretty serious way, even though they are signatories and bound by the uh, convention. The the kind of diplomatic history of, of the IWC is complicated. There are other countries like, for instance, Norway, who withdrew from the whole thing uh, quite early on. And so they do also whale. They do not have to whale under the scientific whaling provision. Japan, which has never withdrawn from the covenant formally, is bound by it and uh, therefore has to find this uh, slip in which to do their do their duty. Part of what I show in the book is that that provision, the scientific whaling provision, was almost certainly drafted by none other than Remington Kellogg himself, um, perversely, an early 20th century American whale scientist, for those of you joining this conversation late, uh, about whom I write a fair bit in the book. It captures some of the irony, if you like, uh, of the scientists hope that they could preserve a space for a kind of non-political engagement with uh, knowledge of the animals. And um, across the middle sections of the book, I offer what amounts to a kind of prehistory of scientific whaling in its, um, in its current form. So anybody who's interested in those kinds of debates as they go on now would do well at least to kind of skim through the book to get a feel for how it is that uh, scientific whaling in the form currently practiced by Japan, emerges over the course of the 20th century and is really a pretty deeply grounded uh, project. It reaches back to those hip booters um, from whom we departed um, uh, almost an, an hour ago. So, Graham, of the 2 million or 3 million things that we didn't have a chance to get to um, that are in the book, is there anything in particular for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read it um, that you, you want to mention and make sure um, that people know um, before they pick up the book or, or you know, for readers who have read the book and, um, uh, you know, stuff we hadn't, haven't had a chance to talk about? Oh, I guess I have a soft spot for the section at the end of the book that deals with the the history of the bumper sticker, Nuke the Whales. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, archival work can be, um, can be kind of tedious in certain ways, but um, across the couple of months that I spent trying to trace the origin of that strange phrase and figure out where it came from and how it got such currency, that really took me into some weird weird places, um, including the punk, the punk rock scene in, in Cambridge in the, in the early 1980s. And, uh, you have to, you have to read it to believe it, but I suppose I have a special little, um, point of pride in connection with that section of the book. And I heard the other day from the, from uh, one of the musicians who wrote the lyrics to the song that coined the phrase, and he was extremely excited to see himself credited as having written, written an epitaph for the for the long decade we call the 1960s um, by having written the slogan for the age of Reagan. And I think Nuke the Whales can uh, could do worse than describe the phrase Nuke the Whales exactly that way. So that's a section of the book I'd, I'd encourage people to uh, to check out. And by by way of valediction, I think, Carla, I think, Carla, that probably what we ought to do for folks is give them the reference to the review reviews. I think um, I think I, it'll do better to do that than actually to uh, read it. But I'd like to give a shout out to uh, to Nick Black, whose review on uh, on Goodreads is worth taking a few minutes on uh, Nick Black on Goodreads, who drilled in many ways to the heart of what is uh, 
a very peculiar 824 page book that Carla has allowed me an hour to, uh, to dilate on for you all. So check out, check out Nick Black if you've made it this far in this conversation. <laughs> Perfect. So Graham, um, to sort of bring us to a close here, now that you've published this, um, what are you working on now? What's next for you? So, I mean, the truth is I've been working now for a couple of years, I think you probably know, Carla, on a project that looks at the relationship between a philosophy of aesthetics and ideas about our sensory apparatus and our kind of cognitive faculties. So I got a Mellon New Directions grant, I guess, three, two or three years ago um, to look at neuroaesthetics and sort of questions of physiological embodiment and the experience of beauty. And um, that's the stuff I've been um, teaching on and working on most intensively for probably the last two years uh, as I brought this book kind of to, to completion. But the new work was really all that. And it's not entirely clear to me what form that, that work is going to take. Uh, you know, Carl, I help edit this magazine called Cabinet, and certain chunks of that work have been appearing there in short format. And um, but I, there's a book, there's a book in it too, a book about um, how people have argued that the experience of the beautiful is, in one way or another, located in our bodies. That's the thing I'd like to keep investigating. Great. Well, thanks so much, Graham. It's it's an amazing book. Um, I had a great time reading it, learned a ton, and it's something that I'll go back to, I think, over and over again. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk with us about it. Thank you, Carla. Really, really fun. Be well. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.